Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Doug Hoyce. Doug Hoyce is the co-founder of Hoyce, Mikolos & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. In his 30-year career as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee, he has personally helped over 10,000 individuals solve their debt problems and rebuild their financial future. He has appeared before the Senate Banking, Trade, and Commerce Committee in Ottawa to give testimony on the impact of bankruptcy legislation on the individual and serves as an Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy Oral Board Examiner. Doug is a passionate advocate for ensuring that people find the right solutions for their debt problems. Frequently interviewed in the media, he has shared his knowledge and expertise on the most common financial myths and mistakes on CBC, Global News, The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, Business News Network, The Financial Post, and CTV News. Doug is the author of the personal finance book, Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes, and How to Avoid Them, available online and in major bookstores across Canada. He's also the host of the Debt Free in 30 podcast. In my interview with Doug, we discuss the pros and cons of filing for bankruptcy and a consumer proposal, what happens to mortgage debt when you file for bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and how to use a home equity line of credit in a responsible way. Without further ado, here's my interview with Doug Hoyes. Hi, Doug. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. It was wonderful to be a guest on your podcast on two separate occasions, and it's nice to reverse the roles and interview you. So super excited about it. Well, I hope you're nice to me. I gave you a rough ride on my podcast, so hopefully you'll be be nice to me on this one. Well, I guess we'll wait and see. (laughs) Well, starting off, every day you speak with people considering filing for bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. What are the pros and cons of each debt relief option? Well, it depends on the individual person. So when someone comes in to see us at Hoys Michaelis, we'll sit down with them and gather all the information. Who do you owe money to? What do you own? What's your monthly income? What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? Is it just I need the phone calls to stop or am I trying to rebuild my credit or or what's happening? So for each person, it's different. Bankruptcy was always the most common of the two options. It isn't any longer, but it, it was for a long period of time. And in a bankruptcy, everyone conceptually understands what a bankruptcy is. Oh, I lose my stuff. That's what a bankruptcy is. And and that's pretty much how it works. I mean, if you own a very valuable house, but you've got a massive amount of debt, well, I guess you could go bankrupt, but you will lose your house. When you go bankrupt, you lose your tax refund, for example, for the year that you go bankrupt. And you also lose a portion of your income if your income is above a certain level. And I'm not going to go into the the math on it. You can go to Google and you know type in surplus income and, and 
it'll explain how it all works, but the, the more you make, the more you have to pay. So if you have a relatively modest income, if you don't think your income is going to be increasing, and if you don't have any assets that you're afraid to lose, then a bankruptcy is often the best option. But in Ontario, and in fact, in most of Canada today, consumer proposals are actually more popular than personal bankruptcies. There are more consumer proposals filed than a personal bankruptcy. And, and a consumer proposal is, it's a deal. We go to everyone you owe money to, and I'm talking about unsecured debt here. So I'm not talking about mortgages. I'm not talking about car loans. I'm talking about unsecured debt, credit cards, bank loans, payday loans, income taxes, that sort of thing. And we go to the people you owe money to and we say, look, I owe this much. I can't afford to pay it back in full. And I certainly can't afford to pay back all the interest you're charging me, but I don't want to go bankrupt. Can we make a deal? And in the vast majority of cases, yes, we can. So it becomes a win-win. You end up paying a certain amount each month for a maximum period of five years and the creditors get that money and wipe out the rest of your debt. So what are the pros and cons? Well, it depends on what your situation is. If you have assets to protect, if you think your income is going to be increasing, then a consumer proposal is often the best option. However, if your income is moderate and you don't have any assets that you're worried about protecting, then a bankruptcy is usually the quicker and cheaper option. So it's very important that before you make a decision like this, you sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. We're licensed by the federal government. And by law, we are required to consult with you for free. We cannot start charging you any money until you've actually filed your bankruptcy or your consumer proposal. So you can understand what your options are, understand the pros and cons for you, and then come up with a decision that makes sense in your unique situation. Great. Thanks for all that. And just curious, you mentioned that nowadays consumer proposals are more popular. Do you have any idea about why they've become more popular than bankruptcy over the years? Is it just because people have a better understanding of them than perhaps a few decades ago? Yes, I think certainly that's the, the case. People have a better understanding of them. I think the banks and the credit card companies and the lenders have a better understanding too, that it's actually better for them as well as for the person in financial trouble. But I think the other thing is when people have a lot of debt, they actually want to do something about it. Nobody wants to run away from it. I know I owe the money. I would like to pay something back. I will feel better about having paid something back. So consumer proposals are, in a lot of cases, they, they make people feel better because they're actually working out a settlement. Both parties have to agree to it. So I think that's one of the other reasons. And I mean, the other reason is, of course, if your income is high, then you don't want to be burdened with a bankruptcy because that can end up costing you more money per month, certainly during the life of the bankruptcy. There's also some advantages potentially with rebuilding your credit and things like that with a consumer proposal. So I think it's all of those factors. But yes, the awareness of consumer proposals has, has certainly increased. When I started my company 20 years ago, nobody had heard of a consumer proposal. They were a relatively new thing at that point. But now, yeah, there, we had a lot of people coming in saying, okay, I've done my research. I don't want to go bankrupt. I want to do a consumer proposal. So awareness is certainly a big factor. Great. Well, thanks very much for that thorough explanation. So you briefly touched on it in your last answer, but could you talk a bit more in depth about what happens to mortgage debt when you file for bankruptcy and a consumer proposal? Yeah. So there's basically two kinds of debt. 
secured and unsecured. A secured debt is attached to something. So a mortgage would be a secured debt because it's attached to a house. A car loan would be a secured debt because it's attached to a car. And that means if you don't pay your mortgage, well, eventually the lender has the legal ability to take the asset. They can foreclose on your house if you're not making payments on your mortgage. They can seize your car if you don't make your car payments. Bankruptcies and consumer proposals deal with unsecured debt, everything other than that, because the lender has no special power to seize anything. If it's an unsecured debt, there's nothing to seize. If you file a bankruptcy and you own a house and you have a mortgage, it's quite possible to just keep on paying your mortgage. The key question there is, is there any equity in my house? So if you have a house that's worth half a million dollars and you have a half a million dollar mortgage on it, well, there's no equity in the house. Meaning if I, as your bankruptcy trustee, was to seize your house and sell it, I'd have to pay the mortgage first. There'd be nothing left over. You can actually go bankrupt and keep your house if there is low or, or you know, no equity in it. Of course, in a place like Ontario over the last few years, House prices have been going up and up and up, and I realize that maybe hasn't been the case over the last year or two, but certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, house prices have been continually increasing. So it's actually pretty uncommon today for someone to file a bankruptcy and own a house. It was much more common five, six, seven years ago. If I go back to like 2011, for example, we published something called the Hoys Michaelis Homeowners Bankruptcy Index. It's on our website at hoys.com, and we publish what percentage of our clients own a house at the time they file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And if you go back to like 2011, it was over a third of our clients. They owned a house, but there wasn't much equity in it. So even if they went bankrupt, they didn't lose it. Well, in 2018 and 2019, that number has been hovering in the sort of five, six, seven percent range which means virtually none of our clients own a home at the time they file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And it's easy to understand why. If you bought your house in 2015, well, it's probably higher in value today than it was then, which means you've got equity, which means you can perhaps refinance and you know pay off your debts. You don't need to go bankrupt. So it's a, a not a common thing at this point in time. Now, Talk to me in a year or two if the real estate market eases off, then that may, may change. But the answer to your question then is, if you file a consumer proposal, you don't lose anything. So you can keep your house, provided the creditors agree, depending on what level of equity is, you keep on making your mortgage payments. There's actually something in the Federal Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act that says, if your secured debt is up to date, then you can continue to pay it. The, the lender can't just say, oh, you went bankrupt, we're gonna seize your house. If you file a bankruptcy, then the issue becomes how much equity is in your house. It won't be the bank that will be the problem if you've got a, a huge amount of equity. It will be the, the trustee saying, hey, wait a minute, there's equity that we've got to unlock for, for creditors. So in general though, yes, it is possible to continue paying a mortgage even while you're bankrupt or in a consumer proposal. Great. Thanks very much for explaining that. Now, let's say that somebody decides that after speaking with an expert like yourself, that it makes sense for them to file for bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And of course, this would be an option that would be last resort compared to some of the other debt solution options. But perhaps you could talk about some of the challenges people face after filing for bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Well, I guess there's two different periods. There's the period while you're in the bankruptcy or the proposal and then there's the period after it's over. So when you go bankrupt, there are some duties you have to perform during the bankruptcy period. So the minimum bankruptcy period is nine months. 
If you have income over the government set limit, what we call surplus income, then your bankruptcy is automatically extended for another year. So you'd be looking at 21 months if it was your first bankruptcy. If it's a second bankruptcy, then it starts at two years and can go up to three years if your income is over the limit. During that period of time, nine months, 21, 24, 36, whatever it is, you are what's called an undischarged bankrupt. You're in the state of bankruptcy. And so during that period of time, you are required to attend to credit counseling sessions with your trustee where we're helping you get back on track, teaching you some, some techniques to rebuild your financial life. You are also required to report to us what your income is each month because the more you make, the more you have to pay in a bankruptcy. So you'd be sending us a monthly budget, copies of your pay stubs, and we'd be analyzing that to see where your income is. That's actually a good thing because it's for a lot of people the first time in their life where they've actually kept track of where their money goes. And so it's, it's often an, an eye opener for them. If the creditors had any questions, wanted to have a meeting, then you, you'd be required to attend that. That's, that's very uncommon. And assuming everything goes according to plan, the bankruptcy ends, I sign a piece of paper, it's over. If something goes off the rails, you're not able to complete all your duties, somebody objects, then we would go to bankruptcy court and discuss it with the bankruptcy judge and get it fixed that way. So there are some duties that you have to perform while you're in the bankruptcy. If you're doing a consumer proposal, then there's no income reporting requirements. You can make as much money as you want. You would still attend those same two credit counseling sessions and obviously you'd be making the payments each month. In a bankruptcy, we're also filing your tax returns. So you'd be providing us with information to do that. So, so there are some duties that are required while you're in the, the period of bankruptcy. You are required to surrender your credit cards at the start of the bankruptcy process. So one of the challenges is, well, if I need a credit card for traveling, how is that all going to work? And there's many solutions to that. The most common one is you get your wife, your brother, your mother, something like that to get a, a card, put you on as a supplemental and, and off you go. But there are other solutions as well, prepaid cards, secured cards, and so on. So, so there are some challenges during the process, but the process is relatively short. And once you've completed your duties, those obligations are done. And of course, the big upside is all of the debts are, are done too. And so then once the process is done, then you begin the process of rebuilding your credit to get back on track. That's great that you mentioned that about rebuilding your credit, because that actually leads perfectly into the next question. My understanding is when you file for bankruptcy or consumer proposal, it puts basically a blemish on your credit report. Could you perhaps tell the listeners what steps can somebody take to rebuild their credit after filing for bankruptcy or consumer proposal? Because you know I'm sure people would like to get a mortgage with a prime lender one day and not have to pay high interest rates. So perhaps you could let the listeners know what they could do to get their credit back to where it was. Sure. The number one thing you want to do is begin saving money because money makes everything easier. People come into me all the time and they say, okay, you know, someday I would like to buy a house. And of course I say to them, well, here in Toronto, you're going to have to have a million or two dollars to buy a little tiny place. But okay, that's, it's a perfectly reasonable goal. Number one, you need to have a down payment. It's as simple as that. Your first step once the proposal or bankruptcy is finished is to start saving money, which becomes fairly easy for a lot of people because they were paying all this money on their debts. I mean, I have my typical client is paying somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars a month trying to juggle all the interest payments and minimum payments and everything on all the debts that they've got. So once that obligation is done, they can now actually start saving some money. So that's what I suggest they do. And, and we sit down with them and explain this in a bit more detail. But if your goal is to buy a house in five years, well, maybe the starting point is to put some money into an RSP so that you build up some cash that way. And of course, you can use the RSP for the new home buyers program if you've never owned a 
home before. So that's a way with the, your tax refunds to perhaps build up a down payment quicker. But number one is going to be saving. You got to save money. The second step then is to take steps to rebuild your credit. And I think you want to be saving money first before you start worrying about rebuilding credit because without some cash in the bank, credit isn't going to help you buying a house. If you don't have a down payment, then the credit isn't as important as coming up with that down payment. So how you start rebuilding your credit is in small steps. You start by getting perhaps a small credit card, a secured credit card, something like that. It's in most cases fairly simple to get a small card at your bank or at one of the other credit card providers. Maybe you're only starting out with a $500 limit or a $1,000 limit, but in most cases they're willing to take the risk on that. And perhaps you get one, maybe two of those. Well, now you've got two things on your credit report that say, hey, somebody was willing to take a chance on me. And over time, those positive things begin to counterbalance, as you say, there's a blemish on your credit report from the period when you did the bankruptcy or the proposal. So your goal is to put positive things on your credit report and to build up cash so that when you are approaching that mortgage broker to say, hey, I would like to get a mortgage so I can buy a house, they can say, okay, good. I see that you've done some positive things and you therefore get back on track. So it is definitely possible to rebuild. I've had hundreds of clients over the years who have gone bankrupt or filed a consumer proposal and ended up at some later time buying a house. But you've got to be disciplined and diligent. You've got to save money. You've got to take the steps to rebuild your credit. But if you do, it's certainly possible. Great. Thanks so much for explaining that. Now, switching topics for a moment, home equity lines of credit can be a good way to consolidate debt, but they could also get you into financial trouble. What advice do you have for Canadians looking to use their home equity lines of credit in a responsible way? Well, a HELOC, as you say, is, I mean, it's debt is what it is. And back in the old days, we used to call them second mortgages. You know, I got a first mortgage, then I get a second mortgage. And everyone knew, oh, a second mortgage, that's worse than a first mortgage. The interest rate is higher, there's more risk. Well, now, of course, we don't want to use those negative terms, so we call them HELOCs. And I understand there are people who don't have a first mortgage, they only have a HELOC. I understand that that's very common these days. But I think if you are consolidating credit card debt with a HELOC, you have to understand that your debt level is still the same. If you've got $50,000 in credit card debt and you go out and get a $50,000 HELOC, you still have $50,000 in debt. Now, hopefully the interest rate on the HELOC is a lot less than what you're paying on your credit cards. Hopefully you cut up your credit cards so you don't get into any further debt. And whatever money you were throwing on the credit cards, if you can throw that money on the HELOC, obviously with the lower interest rate, you will be able to get yourself out of debt uh, much quicker. I think the key thing to remember with a HELOC is that a HELOC is a bet on the future. You are betting that house prices will either go up or at the very least stay the same. You're making a gamble that interest rates won't go up. You're making a gamble that your job situation will stay the same or improve because if you get laid off or if your income drops, then it's going to be kind of hard to make the payments. And you are also making the bet that the lender won't change the rules. And I mean, every HELOC has, has different terms, but in general, a home equity line of credit is a callable loan, meaning the bank, the lender, 
can change the rules when they want to. And the obvious rule is, well, they can raise the interest rate because most HELOCs are, are variable interest rate, but they can also change the terms. Maybe when you get the HELOC, they say, hey, it's interest only. All you got to do is pay the interest. But if times get tough and they decide, well, you know what? We also want you to start paying down some of the principal. That can really change the math for you. I think if you are getting a HELOC, you have to have a plan. It's kind of like when you buy a stock on the stock market. It's not when you buy that matters, it's also when you sell. Do you have a plan? When I buy that stock for this price, I've already decided if it hits this price, I'm gonna sell it. I've already made the decision when I can think about it rationally. Well, I think it's gotta be the same with a HELOC. If I'm getting a HELOC because I wanna do some home renovations because I think that will improve the value of my home, maybe it will also improve my quality of life or whatever, great. Set yourself a budget, make sure you don't get in over your head and then have a plan to actually repay it. It shouldn't be something that's going to sit there forever. And all too often, I see people who they've got credit card debt, something happened, they had to use that to survive, they get a HELOC, they pay off the credit card debt, but they have no plan to pay the HELOC off. They don't cut up the credit card, so now they've got more credit card debt as well. It actually made things worse. So yes, if you are very responsible, then a HELOC can be a good way to consolidate debt, but it is also a very easy type of debt to get in a lot of cases, maybe a little more difficult today than it was a couple of years ago, but they're still relatively prevalent. It's easy. It's almost like an ATM machine, how easy it is to draw on it, pay it, draw on it, pay on it. So make sure you've got an end game. How am I going to pay this off? Because the lower your debt levels, the better. That's, that's how you protect yourself. Great advice, Doug. Now let's switch gears for a moment to purchasing a property. When buying a home, the last thing you want is to find yourself house rich, cash poor, as the cliche goes. What should Canadians do ahead of time to ensure they can afford the home they're buying? Well, the most important thing is to crunch the numbers. And I think, unfortunately, when we're thinking about buying a home, we talk to people who have a strong incentive to sell us the home, the real estate agent, the, the person who's selling the home, they want you to buy it. And that's great. But you also need to understand that there are costs involved. And I have people in my office all the time who say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I was paying 2,500 bucks on rent and I was able to buy this house. Mortgage rates are low. I only have to pay 2,400 bucks on the mortgage. I'm actually ahead of the game. Well, no. It's not the mortgage that matters. It's the mortgage and everything else. There's property taxes and condo fees and, of course, repairs and maintenance. And now you've moved to a bigger place. So your hydro bill is higher, your gas bill is higher, insurance is higher, and all the rest of it. I would suggest you start by talking to a few of your friends or family members who actually own a house and ask them to spell out for you how much have you spent in the last year, two years, three years. Not just on your hydro bill, because that's relatively easy to figure out. You can phone the hydro company. And and find out what the historical bills for this place you want to buy are. But what do you spend on maintenance? What does it cost you every spring when you start doing gardening? How much does it cost to maintain a snowblower in the winter? What happens when the roof leaks? How much does a furnace cost? How much is when the dishwasher breaks? Because when you own the house, all of those costs are yours. And they don't come up every day. You're not replacing the roof every day. Your dishwasher isn't going to break every day. Your washing machine, your dryer, your fridge, your stove, whatever. But they don't last forever. You should understand exactly what they cost and amortize that out over a, a period of time. And then you can at least make a reasonable comparison between owning and renting. Unfortunately, I think over the last 10 or 15 years, we've got into this habit of believing that house prices always go up. They never go down. 
which is historically inaccurate. But yes, we've been on a pretty good run here. So it really doesn't matter what my monthly costs are. The house is going to go up in value anyways. I can always sell it and make money. Well, yes, but you still have to be carrying it every month until you end up selling it 10 or 15 years from now. And if it's the difference between renting a place for 2000 bucks a month or owning a house for 3000 bucks a month, it's costing you $1,000 a month extra. Either you are getting $1,000 more a month out of enjoyment because, hey, you know, I'm in my kid's school district. I can have a dog. I can paint the walls green if I want to. I don't have to worry about a landlord. Okay, if that's worth 1000 bucks a month to you, fantastic. No reason you can't do that. But if you're betting on the house going up in value by $1,000 a month forever so you can get your money back, that may not be a, a safe assumption. Crunch the numbers and get as realistic numbers as you can. Go to people you trust who've owned a house for a long period of time and find out what all those things cost. Obviously, utilities, property taxes, repairs and maintenance, condos, fees, all those kind of things. Because otherwise, you're going to be blindsided. You're going to go, oh my goodness, I did not realize it was going to cost that much. Crunch the numbers so you're going into it with your eyes wide open. That's great advice. I mean, being a first-time whole bar myself, I had no idea about the other expenses like property taxes or utilities or even repairs and maintenance, which can be quite costly depending on the condition of your house. So what I did was speak with my parents and even sometimes when I was looking at properties, I would ask them for what their approximate utility bills are. Some people thought that was a bit of a strange question, but at least I had that information up front and I could create a mock budget so that I wasn't blindsided by some of these monthly costs besides just the mortgage. Yeah, parents are an excellent resource because they've probably owned a house for 30 or 40 years. So they understand not just the monthly costs, but all of the, the long-term costs. And I think, and again, I'm speaking from the experience of meeting with people who owned a house and don't own it anymore because it was much too costly for them. It's the one-time expenses that are the real killer. Okay, I thought the hydro bill was going to be 100 bucks a month. It's 150 bucks a month. Well, okay, that's more than I expected to spend, but that's not usually the killer. It's you know, I didn't realize that when the windstorm came and it ripped part of my roof off that it was going to cost many thousands of dollars to fix. I didn't realize how much a furnace, an air conditioner, appliances, plumbing, electrical work, all those kind of things that can come up on you really quickly. If your washing machine breaks, you got to fix it. That's just kind of how it works. So you've got to replace it. So understanding what those big costs are can really help you. And I think if, if you are going to be buying a house, you certainly want to have some cash in reserve. Don't spend every last penny on the house. There better be some cash tucked away so that if something happens that you weren't expecting, no problem. I've got the money there. I can deal with it as opposed to going deeper into debt to finance those unexpected expenses that if you'd really given it some thought and done some research, you probably could have predicted with some reasonable level of accuracy. So let's say somebody already owns a property and they're running into problems in terms of keeping up with the mortgage payment. What can a borrower do when they're having difficulties paying their mortgage? What options are available to them rather than just filing for bankruptcy or consumer proposal? Well, and, and I get this question all the time, and, and I think I'll be getting it more in, in coming years. My first question to the person is, how important is the house to you? Like, is this really, really important that you keep it or you're, you don't really care? And some people will tell me it's very important that I keep it. I've got three kids. We're in their school district. This is where all their friends are. We've lived here for a long time. I really don't want to move. Okay, that's fair. Other people say to me, well, you know what? I was planning to move to the next town over anyways. There's better jobs there, so I don't really care. So 
I guess the, the first and most obvious solution is, well, sell the house. And if you think that the real estate market is more likely to go down than up, then I guess selling the house is an even, even better idea. And obviously you want to consult with professionals on this and, you know, are there things I should do to the house to make it more presentable and, and, and what. But that is often the easiest and quickest solution. And if you really like the district you're living in and you want your kids to keep going to the same school, well, no problem. You can probably find a place to rent where they can keep going to the same school. And in fact, I had a client not long ago who ended up selling their house and renting another house on the exact same street they were at. So they didn't have to leave the neighborhood and their costs went way down. So selling the house is the obvious first step. Now, when I mention that to people, almost all of them say, no, I don't want to sell the house though. I mean, I worked hard. I put a lot into this house. I want to keep it. Okay. Then the next step is to figure out what you can do on the income and expense side. Can I increase my income or can I decrease my expenses? Maybe you're an empty nester. The kids have already gone. Perhaps you can rent out the basement. You can rent out a room. And obviously your book, Sean, describes this in, in a lot more detail. So can I, you know, turn my, my house? Can I generate additional income from my house? Or are there expenses that I can cut? So, okay, you know, I'm never home anyways, so I don't really need the fancy cable package and I don't need this and I don't need that. Okay, you know, maybe I don't even need a home phone. I'm on my cell phone all the time anyways. I've got unlimited air minutes, whatever. So maybe there are costs that I can cut, which then allow me to, to keep up with things. I think the, the key point, as we talked about earlier, is even if you go bankrupt, that does not solve your monthly cash flow problem. It's, if the problem is that I'm paying $1,000 more than I can afford for my house when I add up the mortgage, the property taxes, the condo fees, the maintenance, the utilities, and whatever, going bankrupt does not change what you're paying for your house. It doesn't change the income that's coming in. It doesn't change those living expenses that go out. Now, obviously, it does take care of, of other unsecured debt, so maybe that's enough to put you back into balance, but that's not enough to do it. So, I think if you are in a cash flow crunch as a result of your house, you have to look at your alternatives. And I tell people, this is not a theoretical discussion. And I realize going from being a homeowner to being a home renter is a big adjustment, certainly mentally. So don't try to think of it as a theoretical exercise. Actually go out there and look at places to rent. Look at places in your neighborhood. Look at, you know, what would I actually get? What would I be, be spending if I was renting? And in a lot of cases, it's like, wow, I could actually rent a pretty good place because there's some investors who own these condos or houses and they don't want to sell them and they want to rent them out. Now, there's risks to that. I understand, you know, the landlord can decide not to rent to you anymore and you end up looking for a place. So, you, you got to put some work into it. You've actually got to go and visit places to rent and, and things like that to decide if, if that's the answer. Now, if your problem is, well, I've got all these credit cards and all these other debts and that's what's causing me the problems, then okay, perhaps a consumer proposal is a way to get rid of that other debt, which then allows you to have the cash flow to continue to maintain the house and then and that becomes the answer. But again, crunch the numbers and actually go out and look at what your alternatives are and, and hopefully then you can make an informed decision. That's great advice. And I would also say if you're having problems with the mortgage payments, it's a good idea to approach your lender or mortgage broker sooner rather than later because your lender might have options or be able to make adjustments to your mortgage or come up with some sort of solution if you're running into a bit of a cash flow crunch temporarily. So some people's reaction may be to try to avoid their lender and hope that the problem goes away. But I would certainly say the first signs that you know you're 
you're going to have difficulty paying your mortgage, definitely a good idea to approach your lender or mortgage broker sooner rather than later. Perhaps they could refinance your mortgage or in a worst case scenario, you might have to sell your property, but avoiding them is probably the worst thing that you could do. Yeah. And again, that's all to being proactive, right? So I've had people come in and say to me, well, but my mortgage isn't up for renewal for six months. Okay. Well, it doesn't mean you can't make a phone call today. There's no law that says they can't talk to you. And, and sure, if you're doing a, a substantial, you know, breaking a mortgage, getting another mortgage, something like that with two years to run on it, then sure, maybe there are, there are penalties. But on the other hand, if interest rates have crept up a little bit, then maybe the, the penalties are, are minor. That's not the point. The point is you want to understand what the different options are. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Talking to your, your mortgage professional, your banker, whoever it is that you've dealt with, they can then give you what the different options are. So then you're making a decision based on actual real facts. If I refinance, here's what it will cost me, here's, here's how it will work, then you're making an informed decision. But yes, don't wait till two days before the mortgage is up for renewal to start investigating that. It's, it's a little late at that point. Well, Doug, it's been great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'm always happy to you know, spread the word of what the different debt relief options are out there. As you mentioned, Sean, you've been on my podcast a couple of times. The podcast is called Debt Free in 30, and it's available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places that people get podcasts. So I always got interesting guests on that. And we will occasionally delve into the real estate realm. So I think some of, some of the guests would be of interest to your listeners. We've also got a YouTube channel where we post a lot of informative videos, the Hoysman Michael's YouTube channel, as well as the, the Debt Free and 30 YouTube channel, where we post the videos for the podcast. And our main website is hoys.com. That's H-O-Y-E-S.com, where we've got all sorts of articles, all the types of stuff we talked about today, comparisons of bankruptcy to a consumer proposal, how does surplus income work, and what happens if I own a house and I have to go bankrupt. All of those things are covered in great detail at hoys.com. Those are all a bunch of great free resources for people who are looking to find out more about how to deal with their debt. Yeah, your website is definitely great. Whenever I'm Googling certain terms to, to do with bankruptcy or consumer proposal, your pages on your website are always first or second on Google and they explain things so well. So I'd certainly I encourage the listeners to check out your website because it's quite helpful and it's written in a language that the everyday person could understand. So I definitely appreciate that. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning! <laughs>